In February of 1908, just a few months shy of his 58th birthday, Patrick Floyd Garrett was shot dead. Although evidence strongly suggests that the legendary lawman was murdered, and although there was a full confession, ultimately no one would ever be held criminally responsible. Why is that? Was Pat Garrett a bad seed who finally got what he had coming? Was this just the law of karma rearing its ugly head? Or is there a little bit more to the story than meets the eye? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. If you're here to learn all about the events surrounding the death of Pat Garrett and the aftermath, you are most certainly in the right place. This is part five and the final installment in the series on Garrett, but please don't feel obligated to stop what you're doing and go back and listen to the previous four right now. You can start with this episode and then go back and get the full story later if you so choose. Now, we've already discussed Pat's early life, his relationship with Billy the Kid, his time as sheriff of Lincoln County, and most recently, his involvement with the disappearance of Albert Jennings Fountain. I'll link to all these past episodes in the show notes, but we will be starting off today in the year of our Lord, 1899, and quickly moving forward to Garrett's demise. That said, I do want to make an update. I expressed confusion on an earlier episode, part two in this series, as to whether or not Garrett was given the $500 reward after arresting Billy the Kid at Stinking Springs, and thanks to my friend Ben Doss from the Billy the Kid Historical Coalition, I have learned that yes, Pat was given that initial reward in February of 1881. This is not the same $500 he was awarded after killing Billy the Kid, which he also got. This is just for the arrest of the kid. Now, I will put out an episode next week going a little bit further into detail, but I just thought I'd toss that correction out there. All right, back to 1899. Now, following that disappointing not guilty verdict in the Albert Jennings Fountain case, Pat Garrett went back to his normal duties as sheriff of Donna Anna County, a job that would see him involved in yet another shooting. A lawman from Indian Territory paid Garrett a visit, looking for a wanted fugitive with the unfortunate name of Norman Newman. Said he had reason to believe that this man was employed as a cook on the nearby ranch at W.W. Cox, under the assumed name of Billy Reed. Garrett grabbed one of his deputies, Jose Espelin, and they, along with that visiting sheriff, headed for the cock spread. Upon arrival, Garrett easily located Newman, washing dishes in the kitchen, and approached, asking, Are you Mr. Reed? Yes, replied the wanted man. My name's Garrett. I'm the sheriff of this county, and I got a warrant for you. All right, Mr. Garrett, Newman replied, seemingly unconcerned. And then, as Pat went to reach for his handcuffs, the fugitive pounced, smashing his fist straight into Garrett's face and making a run for it. And although Pat was quick and grabbed a hold of him, Newman just kept on a-going, dragging the nearly six-and-a-half-foot-tall sheriff behind him. At this point, Deputy Epsilon comes running in, shucking his revolver, only to have Pat yell out for him not to shoot. Guess he wanted to take Newman alive. So Jose does the next best thing and proceeds to bring the butt of that pistol down over the outlaw's head, more than once. This drives Norman to his knees, but just as Pat is once more fumbling for those cuffs, here comes a damn bulldog hopping up and attacking Deputy Espelin. Not making this up. With Garrett momentarily distracted, Newman gets to his feet, swinging his fist wildly, and running off yet again, allegedly straight for a revolver inside of the Cox Ranch House. Before he's able to get his hands on it, however, two shots are fired, and Billy Reed, a.k.a. Norman Newman, falls dead to the ground. Now, I read a couple accounts of this little dust-up, and it's hard to tell whether or not the entire fight took place inside the house and who actually killed Newman. According to Pat Garrett himself, as told to his friend Emerson Huff, it started in the kitchen, spilled out onto the porch, and then after that bulldog got involved, that's when Newman made a mad dash back into the house, presumably for a gun, and then Pat claimed that his, quote, Mexican, referring to Deputy Espelin, shot the fugitive twice in the back. By the way, oddly enough, that bulldog was owned by none other than Albert B. Fall. We spoke quite a bit about Mr. Fall last week, and he just continues popping up in Garrett's life in the weirdest of ways. And although a coroner's inquest would exonerate both Garrett and his deputy, it didn't help patch up feelings with the Cox family, who owned that ranch where the killing took place. Now let's talk about this W.W. Cox guy real quick. Full name William Webb Cox, he had, as a younger man, been involved in the Sutton-Taylor feud over in Texas took part in the murder of a doctor and his son, 
and later moved to New Mexico, where he reinvented himself as the respectable rancher W.W. Cox. Now here's where things get a little crazy. Oliver Lee, whom we also discussed extensively in the previous episode, prime suspect in the disappearance of Albert Jennings Fountain, was sweet on and would eventually marry Cox's sister-in-law. And the day before Pat Garrett and his posse got into that shootout with Lee and his buddy Gilland, the pair had been hanging out right there at the Cox Ranch. Then there's Print Road, yet another in-law of W.W. Cox. Print supplied the horses to Oliver Lee back when he was on the lamb, and it does not appear that he had any love in his heart whatsoever for old Pat Garrett. And that little fight there at the ranch would only further exasperate matters. Print's sister, who also happened to be the wife of W.W. Cox, was pregnant at the time and in the house when Norman Newman was shot to death. This really pissed Road off because he felt like Pat had needlessly placed his sister and all the other women who happened to be in the house that day in harm's way. And when I say that Print was pissed off, he even threatened to kill Pat Garrett right then and there. Now, Road had the reputation of a guy who wanted to be tough. And you know how people like that are, right? Always trying to prove something. Apparently, this caused a lot of folks to not want anything to do with the man, but he did seem to get along just fine with everyone there at the Cox Ranch. Now, on that day in question, cooler heads prevailed, and there was no further bloodshed. And if all this just seems inconsequential, I promise you, I'm bringing it all up for a reason. You're going to hear a lot more about Print Road and Mr. Cox coming up very shortly. In February of 1900, not too long after that shooting at the Cox Ranch, a couple of criminals named William Wilson and Oscar Wilbur robbed the bank right there in Las Cruces in broad daylight, made off with over $1,000. They struck east at the gallop, and just 20 minutes later, here comes Pat Garrett in the saddle and tracking them down. Now, either they got too much of a head start, or Pat was just getting old, as he would return empty-handed. Not long thereafter, Garrett was tipped off that the duo were in San Antonio. He sent a deputy to investigate, and sure enough, the pair was located and arrested and brought back to New Mexico. Once behind bars there in Donna Anna County, Wilbur turned snitch and claimed that it was Print Road and a friend of his, Will Cravens, who provided the horses that they used for that robbery. And that was all Pat needed to hear. After he and Print had that little confrontation at the Cox Ranch, he was more than happy to slap the man behind bars, which he wasted no time in doing. It was all for naught, though. Rhodes soon acquired the legal counsel of, you'll never guess who, Albert B. Fall, and being the expert litigator he was, both Print and his accomplice Cravens were found not guilty. Surprise, surprise. A turn of events that made Pat Garrett so livid that he decided not to run for another term as sheriff there in Donna Anna County. Speaking with the journalist, Pat stated that the office of sheriff no longer needed his, quote, peculiar talents in the line of good marksmanship and quick action, end quote. In other words, fuck you guys, I'm going home. And for pretty much the next year, Pat Garrett was just a private citizen. Ah, but opportunity soon came a-knocking. Following the assassination of William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt would become the nation's 26th president. And if I know anything about Teddy Roosevelt, it's that he loved his cowboys and Old West lawmen. Not only was Roosevelt aware of who Pat Garrett was, but he even appointed him to the lucrative position of El Paso's Collector of Customs. And in all actuality, it really wasn't all that easy. The president did not go to Garrett. He had to travel to D.C. himself in order to put the bug in Roosevelt's ear. And then once word got out that the president was considering him, a flood of opposition came rolling in, accusing Garrett of being everything from a drunkard to a gambler, an illiterate fool, and even an atheist. Now, I have, at least on one previous episode, accused Garrett of having a drinking problem, but I may have been a little mistaken. Matter of fact, when doing research for this series, I didn't really see anything proven as much. If you have information showing otherwise, please don't hesitate to hit me up, josh at wildwestextra.com. But it does appear that while Pat was a drinker, he was also able to drink like a normal person, unlike myself. Lucky son of a bitch. As far as being a gambler, that accusation was 100% absolutely true. Indeed, Pat's gambling and his association with other gamblers would cost him dearly in the years to come. As for his literacy, that was false. Pat could read and write just fine. And the atheist thing, well, it appears that Pat was what could more accurately be categorized as agnostic. He began to question established religion at a very young age and continued to do so throughout his life. I wasn't able to find much more concerning Garrett's beliefs, but he would specifically request that there be no religious ceremonies at his funeral. By the way, I'm not really sure how his lack of religion would have stopped him from adequately performing his job, but I guess that's just politics, right? 
I mean, even nowadays, it's always customary for presidential candidates to espouse one denomination or another. And as far as I know, we have yet to have an openly agnostic or atheist as a president. Yet they still continue to lie like the rest of us breathe and fuck around on their wives and steal and commit all manner of reprehensible acts. But hey, at least they believe in God, or at least they claim to. Hell, at least Pat was being honest. Anyway, him and Roosevelt did have a heart-to-heart, and I guess Garrett sufficiently answered the president's questions. Rumor has it that Teddy made Garrett sign a piece of paper stating that he would not drink when on duty, thus both swearing him to sobriety and ensuring that Pat could at least write his own name. Now, this new job as a customs collector meant that Garrett was now the federal officer in charge of collecting import duties on foreign goods entering into the U.S. there on the Mexican border. Now, me personally, I've never been outside the country, and I have always been kind of curious why it is in the movies when someone lands back in the United States, they're always asked if they have anything to declare. Well, it turns out declaring is just a fancy way of saying whether or not you're bringing back goods that you purchased abroad. Not for abroad, abroad. It's my understanding that for little trinkets and souvenirs, you don't really owe anything, but on stuff valued a little bit higher, you do have to pay a duty or a tax. Plus, it's also a way of barring the entry of prohibited items. If I learn nothing from watching The Simpsons, it's that you absolutely cannot bring frogs to Australia. And I guess the same goes for here in the U.S. in regard to other types of goods. Anyway, this was Garrett's new job down there in El Paso in a nutshell. And he did take it very seriously. Strictly adhering to all the rules. Yeah, he was that guy. Pat would even make a U.S. Army general, a guy by the name of Harrison Gray Otis, pay duty on all the gifts he was bringing back for his grandchildren. As you can imagine, people began to complain. And it just so happened that General Otis was also the editor of the Los Angeles Times. So he had one hell of a platform to air his grievances. To make matters worse, Pat wasn't all that overly polite while he was doing his job. He was short-tempered, rude, and just flat-out refused to cut anybody any slack, no matter who they were. Hell, Garrett was even formally reprimanded by the Secretary of the Treasury after getting into a damn fistfight with one of his own employees right there at the Custom House. So the dude's walking on thin ice, right? Finally, in April of 1905, President Roosevelt visited San Antonio for a Rough Riders reunion and invited Garrett to join him, which he did, bringing his good friend Tom Powers along for the ride. No big deal other than the fact that Powers was a saloon owner and professional gambler. Not exactly the type that a sitting president in those days wanted to be publicly associated with. And sure as shit, the press got a bunch of pictures of Teddy, Garrett, and Powers all standing together, cheesing it up, and Roosevelt had to learn through the grapevine about Tom's true profession. This angered the president, and a few months later, when it came time to renew Pat's appointment as collector, Roosevelt declined to do so. Teddy would later claim that it wasn't the photos with Powers that caused this decision. And I do think he was at least partially being honest. It was that and everything else. You're never fired for being just a minute late to work, right? Chances are the guy who got fired for showing up to work just a minute late was also late on a very regular basis. Pat's appointment there in El Paso pissed off a lot of people from the get-go, especially the Texans who considered him an outsider. Then there were all the complaints and Garrett's bad relationship with the Treasury Secretary, that fight with his own employee, and yeah, finally, the straw that broke the camel's back, all that bad press with Tom Powers. Roosevelt said, save the drama for your mama, and that was that. Embarrassingly enough, Garrett then traveled to D.C. to plead his case in person, very stupidly bringing Tom Powers along with him. Pat even had his author friend Emerson Huff send a letter to Roosevelt, but it was no use. He was out of a job, and a Texan took his place. I have a ranch in New Mexico, Garrett stated to the press, and I will go there for a time. Just what my future plans will be, I do not know. However, I am going to do something and don't expect to remain idle. I have no complaint to make against anyone for my removal. I simply take my medicine. End quote. Now, Garrett wasn't lying about not staying idle. In no time flat, he went back to doing what he'd always done, hunting down criminals. And by January of 1906, Pat was down in Chihuahua, Mexico, investigating a killing that involved an American rancher by the name of Finstead. The Mexican authorities accused Finstead of brutally murdering his brother-in-law and another man, but the rancher claimed that they were all three attacked by quote-unquote assassins. As Garrett studied the evidence, he came to the same conclusion and worked to get Finstead freed. He even appealed to Teddy Roosevelt, but you can probably guess how that went. 
The Mexican court sentenced the rancher to 12 years in the pen, and that was Pat's first and last legal case he worked in Old Mexico. Meanwhile, Garrett's debts continued to mount. Instead of using that nice little salary he had as a customs collector to pay down some of his outstanding loans, he instead took to gambling. And I guess that's not exactly fair. Pat was always looking into various interests, like when he was doing all that irrigation work and running them stables and ranches and all that stuff. He was always speculating, which I guess is sort of a form of gambling, especially if everything you're investing in is what one author refers to as get-rich-quick schemes. And it's not that Pat was stingy. He was known to help his friends if they were coming up short. He may not have paid his creditors, but when he was flush, he would toss a few dollars to his buddies, just apparently not the buddies who loaned him money in the first place. It's hard to fault Garrett on his generosity, but those debts do not just magically disappear, especially debts owed to snakes like Thomas B. Catrone of the Santa Fe Ring. Things got so bad that not only was Pat's name blacklisted in the ledgers of shop owners, but eventually the sheriff of Donna Anna County, the guy doing Pat's old job, came and seized all of his property, including the Garrett family house. All of it to be put up for auction. The only thing Pat was able to keep was a portion of his land and a homestead that was legally protected by a New Mexico statute. Any livestock he wasn't able to sneak off his property was also auctioned. And surprisingly, Albert B. Fall, yeah, him again, actually stepped in and paid off some of Pat's debts at one of those grocery stores. I guess so that his wife and kids would still be able to eat. In addition, Fall also sent Garrett a check, unprompted, for $50. Not sure how much of this was due to kindness or ulterior motives, but I doubt the disgraced lawman was feeling picky at that point. In August of 1906, Pat was somehow able to become a partner in a real estate company out of El Paso, where he began spending more and more of his time. He also had a mistress there which might explain his absence from home. According to his friend Emerson Huff, this other woman was, quote, the only sort of indiscretion of which Garrett had been guilty. This had nothing to do with his integrity, end quote. As time went on, Pat fell into a foul mood. Even writing the aforementioned Huff and complaining, everything seems to go wrong with me. It wasn't just a pity party either. The nearly 60-year-old Garrett began lashing out at others and frequently getting into fistfights oftentimes coming out on the losing end. And by February of 1908, Garrett began feuding with a young cowboy by the name of Jesse Wayne Brazell, an employee of the Cox Ranch. Mm-hmm, coming full circle now. Going back to the Cox. Born in 1876, Wayne Brazell was considered a good-natured kid, if not a bit slow in the head. An able cowhand who generally got along well with everyone, especially the children of Albert Fall, whom he also worked for on occasion. One of Albert's daughters, years later, would recall that she considered Brazel to be, quote, feeble-minded. And I gotta say, after looking at a few pictures of the guy, I can't help but wonder if she's onto something. There's one where Brazel is sitting down holding a teddy bear with this goofy grin on his face, and another Wayne is flanked by what appears to be two cowboys, both very somber-looking, as was the norm for photos back in those days. But Wayne still has that same goofy smile just staring off into the distance. There's only so much we can tell by pictures, though, right? And I guess it's always possible that Brazel was simply just a cut-up or a class clown type, just trying to make people laugh. Either way you want to cut it, he was most certainly not a likely candidate to enter into a feud with a notorious manhunter like Pat Garrett. And it all started with Wayne leasing some land that was technically owned by Pat's son, Poe. Be that as it may, Pat still considered it his property. Now, neither Pat nor Poe ran cows on this land, but they would allow Brazel to do so on the condition that he would give Pat 10 heifer calves and a colt mare in exchange for a five-year lease. And according to Garrett, Brazel agreed, claiming that he was going to run several head of cattle, but right at the last second, he switched it up and instead moved in a herd of over 1,200 goats. This infuriated Garrett. He seemed to always be infuriated during this time period. But in this case in particular, he figured that after five years of goats having their way, there wouldn't be a damn thing left for any real livestock like cattle. What's more, his own damn neighbor, W.W. Cox, fronted Brazel the money for those daggum goats. And oh, it gets worse. That insult to injury, Brazel's partner in this venture was none other than Garrett enemy, Print Road. And of course, both Cox and Print are connected to Albert B. Fall and Oliver Lee. Ah, the plot thickens. Now, at first, Garrett tried to do things all legal-like and just void the lease, but this didn't pan out. 
He then attempted to get warrants sworn out for the arrest of both Road and Brazil, which sounds kind of weird, but apparently Pat was just trying to get him on a technicality. Some obscure law that stated livestock couldn't graze within a certain distance of a home, something like that. In other words, Garrett was really reaching. Nonetheless, there was a hearing. And even though this was 1908, both parties came armed to the teeth. Print Road even tried to goad the former sheriff into a fight, but Pat wisely did not take the bait. The case was predictably dismissed as Pat and Road swapped threats, with Pat being overheard as cryptically saying that they'd get to him if he didn't get to them first. Over the next several weeks, Garrett was on edge and continued getting into fistfights there in Las Cruces, and he continued to lose. Pat also wrote a letter to his old acquaintance, George Curry, stating, Dear Curry, I am in a hell of a fix. I have been trying to sell my ranch, but no luck. For God's sake, send me $50. Then something very interesting happened. A feller out of El Paso by the name of James Miller stepped in and offered to buy Pat's ranch. Great news, right? This Miller guy even had a thousand head of cattle primed and ready to move. All that had to be done now was void that lease and get those damn goats out of the way. And just in case that name slipped past you, this James Miller from El Paso was none other than Deacon Jim Miller. I did an episode on Miller a long time ago, not currently available to the general public, sorry, uh, but I do plan on doing another series on the man in the near future. And Deacon Jim was just a real piece of work, let me tell you. Born in Arkansas in 1861, Miller is even considered to be a prime suspect in the murder of his own damn grandparents. If that's not bad enough, he would move to Texas where, in the year 1884, he shot and killed his own brother-in-law before falling in with Manny Clements, the cousin of John Wesley Hardin. Remember, Hardin and Clements were both involved with the Taylor faction during the Sutton-Taylor feud, the same side that old W.W. Cox was on. Oh boy, there goes that plot further thickening. Miller would marry into the Clements family and, believe it or not, become a lawman in Pecos, where he was accused of killing several Mexicans and even his own boss, Reeves County Sheriff Bud Frazier. And the hits just kept on a-coming. Long story short, by the turn of the century, Jim Miller was essentially the Old West version of a hired assassin. If you had somebody that needed killing, just slip old Deacon Jim some cash and he'd see to it. FYI, they called him Deacon on account of his refusal to drink or smoke and his regular church attendance. Jim Miller killed a whole hell of a lot of people, and I do find it very hard to believe that Pat Garrett did not know who he was dealing with in 1908. Ah, but money, much like pussy, tends to blind a man. Pat was desperate. He wanted to sell that property before Brazil ruined it with those goats and hopefully make a profit while doing so and pay off some of his bills. And for once, Pat swallowed his anger and attempted a little tact. He approached Wayne as nice as could be and talked him into going to El Paso and visiting with Mr. Miller. Finally, Brazil agreed to give up the lease on one condition that either Garrett or Miller could find someone to buy all those goats. Enter in Carl Adamson, who agreed to purchase all 1,200 goats for $3.50 apiece. An issue quickly arose, however, when Brazil went and recounted his herd and discovered that he had a total of 1,800 goats, as opposed to just 1,200. Well, I'm no mathematician, but that's 600 more goats than Adamson was interested in, and Brazil wasn't going to let go of that lease unless somebody bought all of them. In other words, the deal was off. Got to imagine Pat Garrett's blood was boiling at this point. I'm pretty sure he probably punched a couple of holes in the walls at home. The dude was within a cunt's hair getting a decent payday, and here's this smooth-brained Brazil once again causing problems. Finally, Adamson said he'd meet with both Pat and Brazil over in Las Cruces and see if they couldn't come to a mutually beneficial agreement. Okay, cool. Great. Carl ends up spending the night at Garrett's place with the idea that they'd both ride into Las Cruces the next morning, February 29th, 1908. And once there, they'd hash things out with Brazil. And yeah, I did just say February 29th. I went and double-checked it. Turns out 1908 was a leap year, hence that extra day in February. That morning, Garrett woke early and took what was considered for him unusual care in dressing, even donning a fancy Prince Albert frock coat. He kissed his wife Apollinaria goodbye, as well as the young children, and a little after 8 a.m., he and Adamson headed west in a two-horse buggy. Now, speaking of children, I forgot to mention that Pat now had a total of eight. I think last time I mentioned the kiddos, it was just the three that were born between 1881 and 1884. It seems that he and Mrs. Garrett took a break for a few years and then started back up in 1890 with Anna. Then came Patrick in 1896, Pauline in 1900, 
1903, and then finally, little Jarvis in 1905. So between Pat's firstborn and Jarvis, there's a total of nearly 24 years. And all these children, save for one, would outlive Pat. Ida passed away while still a teenager in 1896. I believe it was from tonsillitis. So yeah, Pat and Adamson leaving that buggy, and Garrett, per usual, was armed. He had at his side a fancy Burgess 12-gauge folding shotgun in a custom-made leather holster. Now, I had to Google this shotgun, and if you're interested, you can find videos on YouTube. But it is not what I envisioned. It almost looks more like a lever-action rifle without the lever, if that makes any sense. Still a very beautiful firearm, though. Uh, sort of a break-open shotgun. Only this one would fold completely in half with the barrel under the stock. There's one photo I found, which appears to be a sketch, maybe for marketing back in the day, showing a man carrying the Burgess folded up and in a holster on his hip. Not sure if this is the same type of holster that Garrett had, but from what I understand, he was not wearing the shotgun on his hip, but rather carrying it separately at his side. After leaving the ranch, Pat and Adamson stopped to water their horses about a half a mile west of Oregon. And while waiting at the trough, Pat questioned a teenage employee if he had seen Brazil, and the boy answered yes, stating that Brazil had just very recently passed by. Sure enough, there was a plum of dust in the direction that the kid pointed. And once the horses drank their fill, Pat and Adamson continued on their way, a journey that Garrett would never complete. Approximately two hours later, Wayne Brazil came rushing into the sheriff's office in Las Cruces, visibly distressed and telling the deputies to lock him up, that he had just killed Pat Garrett. At first, they just figured Brazil was playing around, and they laughed it off. It soon became apparent the goat herder was not joking, though. The deputy locked Wayne in a cell and then stepped outside to question Adamson, who was still sitting in that two-horse buggy. Deputy Lucero then had Adamson drive back out to the scene of the crime, with him and a hastily assembled seven-man coroner's jury following. About five miles away, they came upon Pat's body, still lying there in the Almeida Aurora and still covered with the tiny blanket that Adamson had placed over him. He had been shot twice, once in the head and once in the stomach, and he was laying on his back, a knee drawn up and both arms outstretched. After Garrett's body was taken into town and examined by a doctor, it was determined that the bullet in his head entered from behind, exiting just above his right eye. The angle of the gut shot suggested that it was either sustained when he was already on the ground or as he was fallen and the pistol slug they dug out was just behind one of his shoulders. So what the hell happened? According to Adamson, he and Pat overtook Brazil less than a mile after they left that watering hole outside of Oregon. They saw Wayne talking to someone in the road, but it was too far off to make out who. And by the time they got there, the mysterious figure had rode off. They continued to make their way to Las Cruces with Brazil trotting beside the buggy. Wasn't long before the conversation gravitated toward those damn goats. And things quickly grew heated. Pat began to somewhat verbally abuse Wayne for getting the count wrong in the first place. I mean, just how in the hell do you undercount that many goats? In his defense, Brazil just kept on saying that he was not going to sell out unless he had a buyer for all of them. End of story. At this point, Adamson, who was driving the buggy, decided to step down and guide the horses at a walk. Finally, Pat tells Brazil, Well, I don't care whether you give up possession or not. I can get you out of there anyway. To which Wayne challenges, I don't know whether you can or not. Now this causes Adamson to all of a sudden need to take a piss, or so he claimed. He halts the buggy and then hands the reins to Pat before stepping away to water the dirt. Next thing he knows, Garrett is yelling, God damn you, I will put you off now, followed immediately by a gunshot. Carl Adamson spins around, no word on whether or not he was midstream, just in time to see Pat fall backwards followed by Brazil aiming and firing his pistol once more. Per Adamson, Garrett then stretched out, made a grunt noise, and gave up the ghost. That's when the two hurried into town and Wayne turned himself in. Brazil, of course, maintained that he only shot Pat because the former lawman was going for that shotgun. Now, this story really doesn't add up, though. First of all, it seems pretty clear that Garrett was not on that buggy when he was shot, as both Wayne and Adamson claimed. Garrett's pants were undone, and a glove was missing on his left hand, indicating that he too was standing and urinating. Also, it appeared that that shotgun was placed carefully next to the body, as opposed to just having been naturally dropped or thrown. Also, like I said a minute ago, that doctor who inspected the wounds did think that Pat was shot from behind. Garrett lay in state in Las Cruces for a total of six days, as thousands of people paid their respects. 
There were no coffins long enough to fit in, so one had to be special ordered, but finally, on March 6, 1908, Pat Garrett was laid to rest. Per his wishes, there were no religious ceremonies, and his buddy Tom Powers, that saloon owner from over El Paso way, read the eulogy, one originally used by famous agnostic Robert G. Ingersoll at his own brother's funeral. Now, Wayne Brazell was charged with murder, and his bell was quickly put up by several leading citizens of Las Cruces, including W.W. Cox. Those closest to Garrett soon deduced that there was more involved in his death than Adamson and Brazell were letting on particularly the involvement of known murderer Jim Miller. Also, much like after the disappearance of Albert Jennings Fountain, rumors began spreading almost immediately, with most folks seeming to agree that Wayne Brazell had not acted alone. The half-brother of Oliver Lee, Garrett's old nemesis, was heard stating that Deacon Jim Miller was the true assassin. The chief of the New Mexico Mounted Police, Fred Fornoff, was likewise told that Miller was the trigger man and that he had been paid by a local rancher. Could this rancher have been W.W. Cox? After all, not only did Wayne Brazell work for Cox, but the rancher was also connected through marriage to Garrett enemies Oliver Lee and Print Road. Speaking of road, Pat's daughter Annie received an anonymous letter accusing Print of being that mystery man that Brazell was seen talking to on the road. What's more, Print was also seen by others coming and going from the side of the murder. But let's go back to W.W. Cox real quick. What motivation could he have had in orchestrating Garrett's death? Well, it turns out the rancher had loaned Pat at least $3,000 in order to help him pay off some of those creditors. And you know how Garrett was when it came to paying folks back, even his own friends. Pat would just flat out ignore any and all requests for reimbursement. Some think that the money, along with the past shooting there at the Cox Ranch, and all this recent drama over those goats, was enough to sever the relationship between Cox and Garrett for good. Also, per ranch employees, W.W. Cox was deathly afraid of Pat. Starting to sound like a frontier version of that game Clue. Only instead of the butler or the maid, we gotta figure out if it was the dim-witted cowboy, the wealthy rancher, or the notorious assassin. Or some weird combination of all three. Needless to say, the authorities had their work cut out for them. But weirdly enough, they did not have the money needed to conduct a proper investigation. Or so they said. The Attorney General for the Territory of New Mexico even began making the rounds to all of Pat's old friends, hat in hand, attempting to collect donations in order to fund the case. Both Emerson Huff and Jim Powers were approached, but neither were interested in contributing to the cause. I guess Pat had owed both of them money as well, and despite the very real friendship that both men had with Garrett, I reckon they weren't willing to go further in the hole for a dead man. And there was also a little bit of a fear factor. Hoff flat out told the Attorney General, quote, I know that outfit around the Oregon Mountains, and Garrett got killed trying to find out who killed Fountain, and you will get killed trying to find out who killed Garrett. I would advise you to let it alone, end quote. Now, despite these setbacks, Wayne Brazell would be tried for murder in May of 1909, well over a year after the killing. Any guesses as to who Brazell's defense attorney was? If you just yelled out Albert B. Fall, Give yourself a damn pat on the back. In hindsight, I should have turned these last couple episodes into a drinking game. Take a shot every time I mention Fall's name. No, actually, do not do that. That would be horrible for your health. Now, this trial, if you want to call it that, lasted all of one day. And based on what I'm about to tell you, it appears to have either been so badly mishandled that it borders on the criminal, or it was just fixed from the get-go. First of all, the prosecuting attorney was good friends with Albert Fall. Make of that what you will. And the only eyewitness, Carl Adamson, wasn't even called on to testify. The doctor who performed that autopsy, the man who determined that Garrett was shot in the back of the head, was cross-examined, but the defense failed to inquire as to the angles of the bullet wounds. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but there were empty rifle casings found about 30 or 40 feet from Pat's body. A lot of people assumed that since the bullet that was dug out from his midsection came from a pistol, that the same type of round was also used on his head which incidentally went through and through and was not recovered. It could very well be that Pat was shot in the head with a rifle, followed by somebody else, possibly Wayne Brazell, then plugging him in the gut with a pistol. As far as I could ascertain, none of this was brought up at the trial. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes and returned with the verdict of not guilty. And just to be clear, there was no doubt that Brazell killed Garrett. He admitted to it, but the jury just figured it was done in self-defense. In other words, it was justifiable. Shortly thereafter, a big barbecue was held at the Cox Ranch in celebration, 
with Wayne Brazell as the guest of honor. Now, I've had a couple of people reach out since I started this series, informing me of the fact that in 2017, a clerk discovered the original six-man coroner's report over there in Donna Anna County that was filed after Pat's death. And the report does list Wayne Brazell as Garrett's killer. And of course, when this report was found, several news outlets ran stories with headlines suggesting that the mystery was finally, at long last, solved. I'm not so convinced. First of all, this is stuff that was already known for like over 100 years. Wayne Brazell absolutely confessed to killing Pat Garrett, and he was acquitted. And unless I'm missing something here, that coroner's report was filed way before the trial. So while Wayne Brazil is officially listed as Pat Garrett's killer, I'm not disputing that whatsoever. I do think there are enough red flags for us to assume that not all is as it seems. And that maybe, just maybe, Brazil didn't act alone. We also know that despite that acquittal, a lot of the locals there in Donna Anna County suspected that Brazil was simply the fall guy. What's more, there's even stories where he admits as much, saying that he did not kill Pat Garrett. As far as I know, that is anecdotal and not consistent, as Wayne would also make many other statements expressing regret over having killed Pat. Which brings us back to the big question. If Wayne did not kill Garrett, then who did? Well, in the 1950s, historian C.L. Sonishin supposedly met with Oliver Lee's son, Oliver Jr., who claimed that Print Road was the true killer. Apparently, W.W. Cox did indeed hire Deacon Jim, to be the assassin, but Rhodes shot Garrett in the back of the head with a Winchester before Miller could make good on the deal. By the way, apparently Manning Clements was the bag man between Cox and Miller. Now, C.L. Sonishin is also a big brushy bill proponent, so I do generally dismiss anything he touches, but he wasn't alone here as it seems Oliver Lee Jr. did share this same version with at least one other person, New Mexico lawyer W.T. Moyers. Like I said, the story they got was that Print Road shot Garrett in the back of the head with a rifle, and that Brazil just went and fired his pistol into Pat's body. As far as Miller's involvement, a deal's a deal, though, right? And when you shake hands with the devil, you best be prepared for the hell that follows. Deacon Jim, despite not having completed the job, still felt like he needed to get paid. And there just weren't a whole lot of people willing to tell old killer Miller to go get fucked. As such, W.W. Cox still had to pony up the money. And he did. Speaking of Cox, his son would also claim that Uncle Print Road was the shooter. Uh-oh. Not so cut and dry anymore, is it? And how the hell do we know who to believe? Let's just keep going, though. Assuming that Cox and Print Road did conspire to have Pat murdered, and that Brazel was just the dumb fall guy, what would their motivation have been? There's no way they murdered a man simply over goats, right? I know Pat and Print Road had their disagreements in the past, but why wait so long to get even? You know, did he really kill Garrett over that leased land, or was that just the tipping point? And there are a lot of people who think that it simply came down to fear. Pat was not much of a, how should I put this? He wasn't a respecter of feelings. Garrett could be rude, and some of his statements to both Print Road and Wayne Brazell may have seemed a little threatening. We also know that he had been acting somewhat erratic in the months preceding his death, walking around with a damn hair trigger and getting into fights. According to Albert Fall, quote, Everybody was afraid that Garrett was going to kill someone, and a sigh of relief went up when he was finally killed. So yeah, I guess fear is one motivation, and another could have just been greed. After all, in the end, Bill Cox did end up with the Garrett Ranch. By the way, his spread ended up being freaking huge, although much of it was eventually taken by the U.S. government as part of the White Sands Missile Range. So there you go, greed, fear, retribution... Was it Print Road? Was it W.W. Cox? Was it Deacon Jim Miller? Or was it really Wayne Brazell? And who knows? It could all go back to the Albert Jennings Fountain case. Maybe Pat was getting close to solving it. Maybe Cox was involved. Pretty sure Oliver Lee was. And maybe they removed this threat before Pat could come forward with his findings. Now, historian Leon Metz is not quite as suspicious as I am. In his biography, Pat Garrett, The Story of a Western Lawman, Metz writes, quote, Writers, historians, and gunfighter buffs almost unanimously agree the conspiracy began at a secret meeting in El Paso's St. Regis Hotel. How all these authorities document their allegations is in itself something of a secret, since many of them cite dead men who meant to talk for the record, but never quite made it or, quote, printed fictional stories which made many insinuations but offer no proof. Although the names of those attending the meeting vary, depending on whom you read, 
or whom you choose to believe. Those most frequently mentioned have been Oliver Lee, Bill McNew, Jim Miller, Carl Adamson, Manon Clements, Print Road, Wayne Brazell, W.W. Cox, and Albert B. Fall. The subject of this get-together was Pat Garrett and how to get rid of him. Cox supposedly called this group of Garrett haters together and explained the problem and its solution. He despised Garrett because of the Newman killing, he wanted Garrett's land, especially the water, and he feared that Garrett was getting too close to solving the fountain mystery. Cox agreed to pay for the shooting but insisted that the murder had to appear as self-defense. Most of the discussion revolved around the methods for provoking Garrett, and Lee finally came up with the most acceptable solution. He suggested that Wayne Brazell, an easy-going, good-natured young man who was liked by nearly everyone, lease the unused Bear Canyon Ranch and put goats on it. Most people could be counted on to be sympathetic to Brazell, and if he took the blame for the killing, a jury would most certainly free him. Since Brazell was not a professional gunman and might himself be killed if he tried to shoot Garrett, someone else would have to do the job and guarantee its effectiveness. All eyes turned towards Jim Miller. There it is, the motive, the conspiracy, and the murderer. Enough romance and mystery for a saddlebag full of paperback thrillers. It seems a shame that none of it is true. End quote. Metz then goes on to explain, very convincingly, I might add, that there is no logical reason for all these dramatics if all they wanted was for Jim Miller to assassinate Garrett. I mean, think about it. All Miller really had to do was just hide behind a hill and shoot Pat as he rode by. The author also argues that both of the bullet holes in Pat's body were caused by a 45 Colt as opposed to both a pistol and a rifle, referencing that Winchester shell found near Garrett's body. Now, Metz may be mistaken here. <laughs> I offer that up uh, very humbly as I am an idiot and most likely don't know what I'm talking about. But it is my understanding that nobody knows for sure what caliber was used on Garrett's head. I think it's just assumed that it was a 45 as that was the caliber that was pulled out of his torso. I could be wrong, though. It's my opinion that if it was two shooters, Jim Miller or whoever could have initially shot Garrett with a rifle, and then Brazell or even Adamson just shot him again for good measure with a pistol. But I don't know. Uh, furthermore, Metz, when mentioning that Winchester shell, also makes a great point in stating that nobody knows when it was fired. Anyone could have just shot at a deer or even just a target a month prior and left the casing right there on the ground. Metz also points out that Jim Miller preferred to use shotguns during his assassinations, which is also true. Either way, there's no proof that Deacon Jim Miller was there at the scene of the crime. And just in case you've ever heard the rumors about Miller confessing to killing Pat Garrett shortly before he was executed, well, according to the man who actually strung Miller up, that's not true. Per Walter Gain, the jailer who put the noose around Jim's neck, he made no confession whatsoever. I ought to know, said Gain, because I hung him. Metz also discounts the idea that W.W. Cox was involved, speculating that if the rancher really wanted Garrett's property, he could have had it without killing him. I mean, he did hold the damn mortgage on the place. Ultimately, Leon Metz does accept that Wayne Brazell alone was responsible, despite his lack of ever being involved with previous doings. Metz speculates that it was more than likely not premeditated and that Brazell was genuinely afraid of Garrett. Once Pat began hacking on him, things got tense, and then when Garrett turned his back to take a piss, Wayne went ahead and took the safe way out and put Pat down before he could have a chance to do the same to him. Now Jarvis Garrett, who was just a baby when Pat was killed, would naturally want to look into the killing as he got older. And Jarvis came to a conclusion far different than that of historian Leon Metz, an angle to the story that I definitely did not see coming. Turns out Carl Adamson, that go-between with Garrett and Wayne Brazell, was not just a casual acquaintance of Mr. Miller from El Paso. Indeed, he and Deacon Jim were in-laws. What's more, not long after Pat's death, Adamson would be sent to prison for illegally smuggling Chinese workers into the United States from Mexico. And by the looks of things, he was not alone in this venture. Remember Manning Clements, cousin of John Wesley Hardin and brother-in-law of Deacon Jim Miller, and friend of W.W. Cox? Well, he would come to a mysterious end himself 10 months to the day after Garrett's murder. Clements was having a drink in El Paso's Coney Island Saloon, the same drinking establishment owned by Pat Garrett's good friend, Tom Powers, when someone walked up behind him and blew his damn head off. And not a single other person in that saloon ever claimed they saw a thing. Nobody. 
This was at 6.15 in the afternoon, and not only was Texas Ranger Captain John Hughes in attendance, but so was Burt Mossman, one-time head of the Arizona Rangers. As one of their company rose to intervene, either Hughes or Mossman ordered him to sit down, saying, we don't want to get mixed up in this. Now, it turns out Manning Clements was also involved in that human trafficking, and at least one source I found from author Mark Boardman even describes Tom Powers' saloon as the, quote, headquarters of the Chinese smugglers, end quote. Clements had, believe it or not, been working in law enforcement, but was recently charged with armed robbery, as you can imagine ending that particular career. He was drinking heavily, and I guess the theory is that his smuggling partners feared he was going to start talking unless they paid him some hush money. And yeah, instead of paying, they simply hushed Clements for good. The killer? Who knows? But as was the case with Garrett, one prime suspect is Manning's own brother-in-law, Deacon Jim Miller, who of course would be strung up by vigilantes up there in Oklahoma just a few months later. Now, according to Jarvis Garrett, even as recently as the 1970s, his father Pat was not killed by Killer Miller or Wayne Brazell or any of them others, but instead Carl Adamson, the guy behind this damn smuggling operation. It's my understanding that Jarvis did not expand further, but others have taken this to mean that Adamson and Print Road and W.W. Cox and all them other cocksuckers who were mixed up with Manning Clements and Deacon Jim wanted to take Garrett's land in order to hide those Chinese immigrants that they were sneaking into the country. I'm not sure how realistic this is. Uh, I sort of feel like that area of New Mexico already had a lot of places where you could hide a large group of people. I mean, assuming that W.W. Cox was involved, which I'll admit is an assumption, he did have a lot of property himself, and so did Oliver Lee. It does make me wonder how much Tom Powers knew, though. He was a very good friend of Garrett's at one point. Hell, he even gave the damn eulogy at the funeral. But was he also in cahoots with these smugglers? It kind of sounds like it. Kind of makes me curious as to what he really knew about Pat's death. I'm actually really interested in learning more about this in the future. For what it's worth, Tom would take his own life several years later in 1931 as he was battling cancer. Anyway, Carl Adamson passed away in Roswell in 1919. And as far as I know, he never retracted his statements. Albert Bacon Fall, the attorney who was possibly behind the murder of Albert Jennings Fountain, the guy who successfully defended Oliver Lee and Wayne Brazell, would eventually get involved with a little something known as the Teapot Dome scandal. He did a year in jail, his property was seized, and he died completely broke in El Paso in 1944. Print Road moved to Arizona after the Garrett murder and ironically began feuding with his brother-in-law, Henry Murphy, over a leased land dispute. When Road attempted to evict Murphy, Murphy refused, just like Wayne Brazell, so Print simply gunned him down. He'd do two years in prison and live out the rest of his life in El Paso, dying in 1942 at the age of 73. His full name, by the way, was Archie Prentice Road, which I think might be why he was so damn high-strung all the time. As far as old Wayne Brazell goes, brace yourself. Shit's about to get even weirder. Brazell would get married to a schoolteacher in September of 1910, and nine months later, they welcomed a child, Jesse Brazell. Unfortunately, two months after Jesse's birth, Wayne's wife died of pneumonia. And four years after that, Wayne Brazell pulled an Albert Jennings fountain and disappeared off the face of the earth. As late as 1935, his son Jesse, who by then was a grown man, hired a private investigator to figure out what the hell happened to his daddy. The detective soon reported back that Brazell had gone down to South America where he was killed by none other than Butch Cassidy. Okay, so I know there's some debate as far as when Butch died. Uh, I do personally believe Cassidy was killed in Bolivia in 1908, but still, could it be that Brazell really was killed in South America just by somebody else? Maybe. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I found yet another source claiming that Wayne moved to Arizona, where he was also killed. As of this recording, Brazell's fate remains a mystery. Oh, but we're not done. Years later, in 1947, his nephew, William Mack Brazell, would go down in history as being the feller who discovered the Roswell UFO debris on his ranch, about 70 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. Which kind of makes me wonder, was Wayne Brazell killed, or was he abducted by aliens? What about Albert Jennings Fountain and his son? A lot of disappearances going on in this area. Were they also abducted by aliens? Did Pat Garrett get a little too close to uncovering the truth only to have the aliens kill him? 
Obviously, there's no way of proving this. But yeah, I do think that's a safe bet. But why stop there? Was Billy the Kid an alien? If so, does this explain his very weird appearance and that famous tin type? Once again, yes. I mean, I can't prove it, but I do think it's very plausible. Think about it. We don't know for sure where Billy was born, right? People think maybe New York, but there's no proof. Nobody knows where the hell this guy was before he came to New Mexico. Maybe that's because he wasn't born here on Earth. You ever think about that, huh? Maybe that's why they don't want to do a DNA test. Well, you trying to hide, New Mexico? Look, I'm not saying that Billy the Kid was an extraterrestrial and that by killing him, Pat Garrett unwittingly opened up an interdimensional wormhole and plunged the world into a cold war with alien life forms who ultimately would not only abduct Albert Jennings Fountain and Wayne Brazell, but hundreds of others over the past century. But I'm not saying that isn't the case either. You be the judge. Listen, all my bullshit aside, I'm not really sure where I stand on all this. You've heard me say many times in the past that the most simple explanation is oftentimes the one that turns out to be the most true, right? Occam's razor. And when it comes to Pat Garrett's death, the simple explanation is that Wayne Brazell was scared shitless. They were out in the middle of the desert. Pat was leaning on him. So when Wayne got the opportunity, he just put a bullet in the back of Garrett's head. And as Pat was falling or writhing on the ground, he put another in his gut, either just out of nerves or to make sure. He and Adamson stuck to the self-defense story just to make it a little easier for the jury to let Brazell off. Also, y'all know me, I'm kind of big on actual sources. And all the theories I floated earlier about W.W. Cox, Oliver Lee, Deacon Jim Miller, all of that is just anecdotal. As far as I could tell, there's no actual proof that any of them were involved. Is it a little fishy? Yes. <laughs> Honestly, it's more than a little fishy. Albert Fall had his hands in everything. We know he was crooked as hell. Oliver Lee almost certainly was involved in the death of Albert Jennings Fountain. And they were all intertwined and intermarried with W.W. Cox and his family, who himself was a damn killer with ties to the feuding Taylors in Texas. Then you got Print Road and his hatred of Garrett. This weird Chinese smuggling connection, the death of Manning Clements, Tom Powers, Deacon Jim Miller. It's a lot, okay? They say where there's smoke, there's fire. And I'm certainly not opposed to the idea that there was some sort of murder conspiracy. But at the end of the day, all we can go on is what we can prove, right? All the rumors and stories about all these suspects I just mentioned were just that, rumors. At least they were, barring any hard evidence. The official version of Pat's death is also pretty damn plausible. Garrett was desperately in need of money there towards the end and acting like a damn fool. Could he have finally had a break in the fountain case? Or could he have discovered the smuggling operation? Sure. But it's also pretty likely that Wayne Brazell simply murdered Pat due to fear. Who knows? We may never get the full story, right? And by the way, just because I think Brazell did it doesn't mean I buy his story about self-defense. I don't think Garrett was on the buggy. I don't think he was going for that shotgun. I think the evidence suggests that he was indeed taking a piss and Brazell plugged him from behind. What do you think? Is that really what happened? Did Cox or Oliver Lee or Print Road also have a hand in it? What about the aliens? Hit me up, josh at wildwestextra.com. Let me know what's on your mind. Or better yet, if you're a member of Into History, join the Wild West Extravaganza Discord and let me know. Let's get a discussion going. Now, I posed a question at the beginning of this series. Was Pat Garrett a good man or a bad man? And has he been unfairly or falsely maligned? I have thoughts. What else is new, right? But I also think the epilogue in Leon Metz's biography on Pat Garrett sums it up pretty damn good. Mr. Metz writes, quote, Walter Noble Burns, author of the exasperatingly popular Saga of Billy the Kid, is credited with considerable accuracy with being the principal force behind the legend surrounding the life, and most particularly the death, of the incorrigible young man whose violent end brought Pat Garrett momentary fame long-lasting rue and a dubious distinction that can almost be compared to that of the dirty little coward who shot Mr. Howard and laid Jesse James in the ground. Perhaps more than any single person other than the kid himself, Burns, in his romanticized saga, flagrant with error, distortion, and misinterpretation, became Garrett's nemesis. This vastly popular book served to haunt and cast dishonor upon the lawman long after his mutilated corpse was laid to rest in the Las Cruces Cemetery. The saga became an overnight bestseller, and since 1926 has gone through many printings. 
However, unknown to most casual readers with no particular expertise concerning Southwestern history, the book aroused dismay and wrath among Lincoln County historians. Almost to a man, these scholars disputed Burns' contention that Billy the Kid was a knightly hero and that those who opposed him deserved to be sent to the wall. It is therefore ironic, in view of the uproar, that Burns himself took further cognizance of his notes and interviews and, in response to the outcry, wrote a perceptive evaluation of Pat Garrett's accomplishments. Writing outside his usual fictionalized historical style, Burns gave a cogent statement on the subject in 1928 when he wrote to Maurice Garland Fulton, one of the most knowledgeable students of the Lincoln County War and its brutal history. Burns wrote, I have heard Garrett damned up and down in New Mexico as a coward and a cold-blooded murderer. But Garrett carried out the job he undertook with courage and determination when we take into consideration all of its difficulties and dangers. In my estimation, Garrett was a brave man. He must have been brave to do what he did. And what he did, it seems to me, resulted in a new era of law and order for Mexico. Reinforcing Burns' unpublished opinions of Garrett's accomplishments was Eugene Manlove Rhodes. Kind of an awkward name who was sympathetic to the Tunstall McSween Billy the Kid faction, but nevertheless recognized that a brave and honorable Patrick Floyd Garrett had been seriously slandered. Rhodes treated Burns' saga with sarcasm and wrote that with the election of Pat Garrett as sheriff of Lincoln County, came the appalling discovery that the new sheriff intended to observe his oath of office. The book was described as no history but fiction in which Billy the Kid was the hero and Pat Garrett was the heavy. Rhodes said that reading the saga, you will get the impression that Billy got shabby treatment all along the line, that it was inconsiderate of the sheriff to molest him, that it was unsportsmanlike to search for him in his own country, right where he lived, and that it was positively discourteous and unfair that Garrett did not let Billy the Kid kill him in the last. Rhodes furthermore demolished several of the more damaging charges against Garrett by meeting the kid's biographers and idolaters. Rhodes admitted that Garrett killed a former friend, but argued that everyone knew in those days that it was unjust to damn the sheriff just because he did not let a friendship interfere with his duty. With respect to Garrett's bravery, Rhodes said that Pat kept up a daily pursuit of the young outlaw, knowing that there was no rock or ridge or tree, but death might lurk behind it. As for the oft-repeated statement that Garrett unfairly killed the kid, Rhodes retorted that Billy would have taken the same advantage had the opportunity presented itself. There was only one thing for Garrett to do, and he did it. He shot Billy through the heart. I cannot imagine any man doing otherwise. I cannot imagine any other thing to do. To his great credit, Pat Garrett had no illusions about what others would think of him after his death, nor did he worry or concern himself about his place in history. That evaluation he left to others. Though this question is still being answered, one view that can be given considerable weight is that of Theodore Roosevelt who, although he failed to renew Garrett's position as El Paso customs collector, followed the former sheriff's career with great interest. Garrett's death saddened him, and he spoke briefly of the matter to Patrick J. Hurley, Secretary of War during Herbert Hoover's administration and later United States Ambassador to China. Hurley recalled this conversation in a letter to Oscar Garrett on December 9, 1950. When your father was killed, President Theodore Roosevelt made a statement to the effect that Pat Garrett was not the man who upheld the arm of law and order in New Mexico. He was the first man to introduce law and order. In my time and years, I hope that we will be able to see that justice is done to the character of the greatest New Mexican, Pat Garrett. End quote, and very well put, Mr. Metz. Now, I don't know if this series has done justice to the character of Pat Garrett, and that's certainly not my intention. I'm not here to prop up or defend any of these people. I think their stories are very interesting. I love talking about the Old West. But first and foremost, I do strive for accuracy. And I at least hope that I've got more right than I've gotten wrong as far as Garrett's life is concerned. Pat Garrett was no coward. I don't think he was a murderer. And he certainly was no more of a liar than anybody else from that era. That said, there can be no doubt that he was also a flawed man. He was delinquent in paying his debts yet still found time to gamble. He had a wife and kids at home, but he still cavorted about with a mistress. And on and on. But you know how that saying goes about people in glass houses, right? Hell, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much just one big walking, talking flaw myself. And I guess that's about all I've got on Pat Garrett. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all the comments, the emails, the kind words, the mean words. 
I will be putting out one more episode, sort of summing up my thoughts on both Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett next week. And then I think we're done with that particular chapter of history, at least for a while. I think I've got something like five hours worth of Billy the Kid content out there at this point. And I'll be honest with you, I'm about Billy the Kid out. Got a lot of great topics coming up, though. As promised, we will be doing an episode on Harry Tracy. We will be doing an episode on John Joel Glanton, whose gang of scalp hunters was the motivation behind Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. We got an episode coming up on old Soapy Smith. And I am very excited to then be moving on to Red Cloud's War. Also going to discuss the Minnesota Massacre, the Fetterman fight, Little Bighorn, and finally, Wounded Knee. Got a lot of stuff in the works, man. I was actually going through a list in my head the other day of all the stuff that I need to cover on this podcast. We are in no danger of running out of stuff to talk about. We still got some very big names. We still got Jesse James. We still got Butch Cassidy. I need to go back and do an entire series on John Wesley Harden. I need to do an entire series on Deacon Jim Miller. Same goes for Tom Horn. I want to do a series on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And then, of course, all the great suggestions that y'all keep sending my way. Like, I have a list a mile long of stuff we're going to talk about right here on the Wild West. Extravaganza. All right, till next time, don't go killing nobody over a bunch of goats, okay? Do not let the aliens abduct you. And don't go naming your kids Prentice. All right, till next week, adios. Speaking of cocks. <laughs>